Thank you. It's sure nice to be here in person for a change and to actually see, see your faces. So thank you again for the invite to, to come and to continue in your series in, in Matthew. And of course, we're looking here at Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is one of those passages that needs some background explanation. You've got to kind of set it in its proper context to interpret it properly. Some passages of Scripture you don't need to do that. Um, it's such a nature that you can just read it and, and understand it. Matthew 13 has been very misunderstood often by people because they have not taken into account the context. Uh, and particularly, you have to put Matthew 13 into the whole of, gospel, of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 13 is kind of a pivotal point, really. Uh, and so we need to, to know a little bit about the background. And that's what we did partly last weekend. And, and uh, we'll do a little bit more again today. The kingdom of God was physically present on the earth in the person of the king, the Lord Jesus. He was the king Messiah that had been promised. And that is first coming. The announcement was made by John the Baptist and then by Jesus himself that the nation of Israel was to repent for the kingdom of heaven had arrived. The kingdom of heaven was in their midst. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. The king had come. And he offered to the nation of Israel the kingdom. But sadly, they rejected the king and they rejected the kingdom. Uh, the people of Israel, and particularly the leaders, declared, we will not have this man to rule over us. In other words, we don't want him as our king. They said, away with him, crucify him, kill him, get rid of him, remove him from our sight. And then they made this very startling uh, claim. They said, let his blood be on us. And on our children, we have no king but Caesar. And those are devastating words, words of rejection. So what's happening here? When you go back into the Old Testament, the prophets are looking from a distance, uh, prophesying of the coming of Messiah. And when they spoke of that coming of Messiah, uh, they saw Messiah as being victorious and triumphant and setting up a, a glorious earthly reign. And, of course, the nation of Israel would be significant in that. So they just sort all telescope together. Messiah comes, conquers, sets up his kingdom. From our vantage point now, looking back on the Old Testament, the New Testament, the, the events surrounding the life of the Lord Jesus, we now understand that there is a gap between his first coming and his second coming. They didn't see that in the Old Testament. They thought of one coming of the Messiah. We understand that there are two comings of Messiah. At his first coming, he came as the suffering servant of Yahweh. He came to lay down his life. He came in humility. He came in weakness. He was born as a babe. He went to the cross. So he was rejected. He was humiliated. And he was subjected to, to cruel treatment. Uh, they, they spat upon him. They cursed him. It, it just seemed to those who were watching that this was a total disaster. If he is the Messiah, then, then this is all unraveling. And it just seemed to be such an awful thing. But again, from our vantage point, we can look back and understand that the reason all this was happening to the Lord Jesus is because he was allowing it to happen. It wasn't a disaster. This was all within the will and the plan and the timing of God. The Lord Jesus came as the Lamb of God, and he took upon him the sin of the world. Uh, he was willing at his first coming to be thought of as nothing. Uh, he was willing to be placed in a, in a position of, of ultimately death as, as, as the ultimate servant. That all happened at his first coming. So what happened to all these promises of his victory, of his triumph, of his, of his kingdom? Well, that's still going to happen. But that's going to happen at his second coming in the future. Then he will establish his triumphant earthly kingdom. And all of the prophecies, all of the promises will be fulfilled. But in the meantime, between that first and second coming of Jesus, the king is absent from the earth. He's in heaven. He is not physically present here on earth. He's working by his Holy Spirit. He's working through his word. His influence is felt in the world. But he himself is not physically present. He said to, to Pilate in John 18 and verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And people have taken that statement to mean that he gave up on his kingdom in this world. But, but not so according to prophecy. 
We could think of him saying, my kingdom is not yet of this world, or not now of this world. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jew. But for now, my kingdom is not from here. So bearing that in mind, we come to Matthew 13. Uh, the nation has rejected him. The king has rejected. The kingdom has been rejected. So now the way that Jesus teaches begins to change. And his disciples notice that. Jesus begins to use parables of a new kind. And these stories, these parables, are designed to do two opposite things. On the one hand, they're designed to reveal truth to those who believe in him. But they're also designed to conceal truth from those who do not believe in him. He spoke about the kingdom, but he didn't speak about it being at hand anymore. Uh, in one sense, we could say the visible manifestation of the kingdom had gone underground, as it were. Th that visible manifestation of the kingdom was now postponed. Um, but instead, it was here in mystery form, in an interim form, this interim between the first and the second coming of Messiah. This phase of the kingdom, this interim phase of the kingdom, had not been known in the Old Testament it, it was not foreseen clearly by the prophets. Right? This is something new that Jesus now reveals, this gap between his first and second coming. And so Matthew 13, in the, in the parables of Matthew 13, uh, Jesus uses a phrase, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Something that had been concealed, hidden before, he is now bringing to the fore. And those who believe in him understand this and get to see that. And he wants those who believe in him to know about the nature of this interim kingdom, this, this mystery form of the kingdom. He wants us to understand what's going to happen in this time. And so we saw last week the parable of the sower and the soils here in Matthew 13. And that parable uh, indicated to us that there are different kinds of responses to the message of the kingdom. There was kind of a wide circle of outward profession and three different soils represented that. Um, it's superficial, uh, it's, it's not uh, deep, it's, it's not lasting, it's not enduring. Uh, just for a little while, there seems to be some kind of reception of the word. This is kind of the broad road, right? This is the general level of profession of faith, but th there's really no root there. Um, it's, it fizzles away under pressure. So this wide circle of mere outward profession. But then we saw a narrower inner circle, smaller circle of those who genuinely believe. They genuinely believe and as a result they personally receive the truth and, and that truth makes a big difference in their life. And they produce spiritual fruit. It changes their lives and it touches others who are around them. So a wide circle, lots of people there, a narrower circle is only a few. We see that even in Jesus' ministry, John 1.12 says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. It's a key understanding in terms of what's happening here. That pattern continues between the first and the second comings of Jesus. Uh, the kingdom then, this, this mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, spans that whole time. Now, in, in that time is the church age, right? So it starts when Jesus came to earth, and then after some time, Jesus dies, is risen from the dead, he ascends on high, and then you have the day of Pentecost. And that's the beginning of the church age, right? So the church age lasts until the rapture. And then after the church has been removed, in this world there will be the tribulation period, the battle of Armageddon, the return of the Lord Jesus, and then the setting up of his kingdom. So the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven involve quite a broad period, and somewhere in that period is the church age. So the kingdom is not equal to the church, but the church age is in the midst of that kingdom period, this interim kingdom period. Notice something in the parable that we looked at last week. There's one sower. There's one kind of seed, the good seed of the gospel of the kingdom, but there were various responses. Now we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the tares that, that comes next. 
And if you'd like to turn to Matthew 13 and go down to verse 24, where it says another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. <clears throat> in this parable, there's not one sower, there's two sowers. In this parable, there's not one kind of seed, there's two different kinds of seed that, that are sown. You'll also see that there are two very different outcomes, two different destinations of two groups of people that are described here. <clears throat> so the kingdom is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So let's just read a little bit of this. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Like that word tares just mean like weeds, right? How come it has weeds, tares? And he said, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, no, no, lest while you gather up the tares or the, the, the weeds, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the parable that Jesus gives. The, the disciples don't quite get that. And so they come to him later on and they ask him for an explanation. So if you drop down to verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us this parable of the tares of the field. Uh, what, what is this all about? So he answers and said, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the sage. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The first question that the disciples asked him was, who is this man? In the story, there was a man who sowed in this field, but, but who is this man? Well, there's no guessing, because in verse 37, Jesus tells us exactly who it is. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. This is a vital starting point for understanding this parable then. And so I guess our question would be, who is the son of man? Right? Who is he who sows the son of man? Oh, that's great, but... Who is the Son of Man? So just some background here. The phrase Son of Man is used lots of times in the Bible, Old and New Testament. It's sometimes used generically to refer to any descendant of Adam, right? And we're all descendants of Adam. So anybody who is descended from Adam, in that sense, is a son of man. We are a son of Adam. So it's used generically in that way. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is referred to as the Son of Man 93 times in that book. In Daniel, uh, he is referred to as the Son of Man. But, but here's a key phrase in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, the Son of Man is used as a title for the Messiah. Okay, and this is, this is significant. The Son of Man is used as a title for Messiah. So you come into New Testament and, and you, you look for this phrase, the Son of Man. It's used 88 times of Jesus. 88 times in the gospel, it's used of Jesus. In fact, just in Matthew's gospel, 30 times Jesus uses it of himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. So what do we learn about the Son of Man uh, in, in Matthew's gospel? Very quickly, Matthew 9, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Ooh, who can forgive sins but God, right? So we begin to clue in as to who the Son of Man is. Uh, this is the Word made flesh, right? This is God come in human form. Matthew 18, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What was lost? People were lost. He came to save people that were lost. Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
So we're beginning to clue in here this, this messianic title for the Son of Man. We see it unfolding in application to the Lord Jesus. Then we read in Matthew 17, 12, the Son of Man is about to suffer. And then Matthew 20 and verse 18, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And then we read, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And in Matthew 26, verse 2, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's very clear. Here is the first coming of, of the Messiah. And he's coming to, to serve. He's coming to give himself. He's coming to deal with sins. He's coming as the Lamb of God. He's going to the cross. But we learn more than just about the first coming of Jesus from this title, Son of Man. We're also told in Matthew 26, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So now we see the second coming, the glory of the Son of Man. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Do you remember back in, in Acts chapter 7, when uh, Stephen was being stoned to death for his faith, he says in verse 56, he says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man. Wow, he, he, he has a, a vision. He sees the Son of Man. And what does he say about him? Standing at the right hand of God. So we're given this little glimpse of, of Jesus in his glory at the right hand of the Father. Matthew 24, 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this is not the rapture because the rapture happens secretly, right? At the rapture, Jesus doesn't come for the world to see and he doesn't come back to the earth. He comes to, to the air, to the clouds and, and the church is snatched away to be with him. But this is the second coming of Jesus. And, and the tribes, all the tribes of the earth will, will see him. Wow. Matthew 24 and verse 44. He said, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then in Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And then Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels will come with him. And he will sit on, on the throne of his glory. So what a contrast here between his first coming and his second coming. So when we read in Matthew 13, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. It's clearly not just a generic uh, term referring to a descendant of, of Adam. But this is the last Adam. This is the second Adam, the promised Messiah, the one that Daniel saw, the son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of Man. He came once, and he is coming again. And these parables cover this period between his first and second coming. So who is it that sows the seed? It, it is the Son of Man. Verse 38 explains that the field that he sows in is the world. Notice this is not the church, right? This is the world that he is sowing in. And he says the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. So the wheat represents true believers, and then he says the weeds or the tares are the sons of the wicked one. In other words, these are false believers. These are, are ones who pretend as if they are followers of the Messiah, but they really are not. The field is the world. I mean, we know that this, this is my father's world, right? We sang that earlier. The world is God's field. And, and we read that all power in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is rightfully the kingdom of this whole world, this whole earth. Now, both the good seeds and the bad seeds, and the seeds here are people, right? The first parable, the seeds was the message. But now the seeds are people. The good and the bad seeds are sown in the world, and they all grow together. The separation only comes at the consummation of the age, the harvest time. Not the end of the world, but the harvest time that is spoken about. And we understand that to be the second coming of Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. So remember, Jesus is again using an illustration here of a sower. 
But this time the focus is on the different kinds of seeds. The first parable, the focus was on the different kinds of responses. Now it's the different kind of seeds. The good seed is not the word preached, but the good seed is people. These are believers, those who who know and trust the Lord Jesus and and, and who followed him. Jesus sowed in his earthly ministry. We think of the the 12 disciples that that he called to himself, and he commissioned them to serve him and, and to proclaim the message. Think even of John the Baptist who came as a herald, right, as a son of the kingdom, to prepare Israel to to receive the king. uh, Mark 3, we read that Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those that he himself wanted. They came to him and he appointed 12, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. They were chosen by the Lord Jesus for a purpose, and this purpose was to be his, his workers, his servants, his heralds, throughout the world and he commissioned them at the end of his life going to all the world right and proclaim the gospel in john 17 jesus prays and he says father as you sent me into the world i also have sent them into the world john 17 20 i do not pray for these the disciples alone but for those who will believe in me through their word and so we see this emphasis on the world. Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, he said to him, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds, the tares, are the sons of the wicked one. They are sown among the wheat by the enemy, by the devil. And and these sons of the wicked one are, are sons of disobedience, as we read about in, in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. And it tells us we all once were sons of disobedience, right? We, we all once were in the same place. We all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all do not deserve the Lord's love and kindness. Uh, but he is offered by his grace this wonderful message of forgiveness and salvation in the Lord Jesus. Just to reiterate again, we're talking about this interim phase of the kingdom, which had not been foreseen in the Old Testament, Right? The Old Testament pictures the kingdom as a kingdom of righteousness. It's it's all righteousness. There's no unrighteousness at all. Evil is banished and and is overcome. But but here, Jesus reveals that that the kingdom, in its interim form, is a mixed multitude. It's good and bad. It's, It's those who follow the Lord and those who do not. The devil sows those into into the the, the world. He puts those who look like and who sound like and who act like the real deal, but they're not. One thing that's significant, the word that is used here, the darnel, it's a kind of weed that's called a mimic weed. And apparently as the darnel and wheat grow, it's very hard to tell the difference between them. They, They look so much alike. In fact, it really only is is at harvest time that it becomes clear what is wheat and what is weed. So it's not like it's just an an obvious thing. So discernment is needed because it's it's not easily distinguished. So the devil plants his agents, his sons, his people all over the world in, 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 in all different areas. Think of it, Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Like, and, and, and you think of the influence of evil and the pervasive nature of it and how those who follow the devil are everywhere present. Makes me think of Judas, though. He was one of the 12. Disciple. Preacher. He actually went out and preached. He actually had power together with the other disciples to, to heal, to do miracles, to cast out demons. That's astounding. He looked like, sounded like the real thing, but he wasn't. Jesus said, did I, not, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? One of you is a fake. And he said, one of you will betray me. So even amongst the disciples, this pattern, true believers, false believers. Just an aside, this sowing is done, it says, while men slept. So no blame is charged on the servants. It's not like the master turned to the servants and said, you did something wrong. He says, no, no, they, they, they did what was right. And, and, and they faithfully and obediently served the Lord. But the enemy came when, when no one was looking, when, when, when people were asleep. And I think that's a little encouragement to us, even in, in our context as we try to serve the Lord. It's not all going to be perfect. 
And, and in a sense, we can beat ourselves up sometimes because I, I'm not doing enough. I've got to do more. I've got to go here. I've got to run there. And, and we can get things all out of balance and neglect our family in, in the name of serving the Lord. And, and sometimes we can actually do a lot of damage by, by those things. And we need to, to keep all of the scripture in mind as we, as we serve the Lord. And we need to make sure that we are called, that we are commissioned, that we're serving when and where the Lord wants us to. He doesn't expect you to do everything. He has given different gifts in, in, in the body of Christ. He uses different means and methods and people. So, so no um, blame is charged to the servants. It's, it's acknowledged that it is the devil. Throughout the New Testament, we can see lots of examples of weeds or tares. Think of Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They were part of the, the fellowship there, but their hearts obviously were not right. In Acts 8, we read about Simon, who thought that the Holy Spirit could be bought with money. In Galatians 1, Paul speaks about some who trouble the believers and who pervert the, the gospel of Christ. Um, we read in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about Demas, who had forsaken Paul. and says Demas loved this present world. He wanted the goodies and the stuff of this world. Right? He wanted what this world had to offer. But for a time, he was with the apostle Paul as a co-worker. Uh, we read about Alexander the coppersmith, who did great harm to Paul. It's, he was within the fellowship, professing fellowship of believers. We read in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And in 2 Timothy 3, we read about those who have a form of godliness, an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He says they're ever learning they love to study the Bible even. They love theology, right? They, they love to debate Christian things. They, they like to, to nail you and show that they, they can argue better than you can. You know, they're, they're part of this. Ever learning, but never able to come to a real knowledge of the truth. Never really came to know the Lord personally as their Savior. Just a professor, just a purveyor of the word, but, but not a possessor of the truth of God's word in their hearts. Paul mentions Janus and Jambres who resisted Moses. So these also do resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Warren Wearsby makes this comment. He says, wherever Christ sows, Satan comes and sows a counterfeit. We must beware of Satan's counterfeits. He has counterfeit Christians who believe a counterfeit gospel. He encourages a counterfeit righteousness and even has a counterfeit church. At the end of the age, he will produce a counterfeit Christ. We must stay awake to make sure that Satan's ministers do not get into the true fellowship and do damage. It is when God's people are asleep that Satan works. Our task is not to pull up the false, but to plant the true. I love that. It's not that we are to, to run about and say, I've got to you know, get rid of all the evil in the world, but we are to plant the true, right? We, we, we are to be those who represent the Lord, represent the truth of the word of God. We are to be as light to the world. We are not detectives, but evangelists. Sometimes people get so caught up in trying to, you know, study every aspect of every cult, of every aberration of truth, that they somehow lose uh, contact with the truth. They're, they're studying all the, the counterfeits. Now, we're not detectives. We are to be evangelists who proclaim the word. Yes, we must oppose Satan and expose his lies, but primarily we must sow the word of God and bear fruit in the place where he has planted us. We read here in, in, in this parable that the servants recognize, they see that the tares, and they want to rush in and do something about it, right? They, they want to they quickly, okay, let's fix it. And the Lord, the master says, no, don't. Um, leave it, because uprooting the weeds would also damage uh, the wheat as well. Leave it till the harvest. There will come a day of reckoning, and it will take the wisdom and discernment of the Lord himself and his angels to truly be able to separate that, right? And I think sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's real and who's genuine, and again, we can get sidetracked on that, right? We just have to be anchored to the truth ourselves, encourage others to access the word of God, to, to, to fill themselves with the truth, but the Lord says we are not to spend all of our time trying to judge each other in the sense of trying to figure out who's real, who's not real, and so on. 
Um, there's, a, there's a place of discernment, obviously, but, but again, we don't want to become preoccupied with that. The wheat and the tares will grow together until the harvest. So this parable, again, shows the mixed nature of the kingdom in, in its interim form. Uh, it also shows, ultimately, there's only two classes of people. There's only wheat and, and, and weeds, right? There's not multiple classes. And it shows us that the king will indeed separate the two groups, and there's, there's two different ultimate destinations. It's either blessing and reward, or it's judgment and condemnation. Uh, the harvest is at the end of the age, or, or, or better, the consummation of the age, um, the completion of the age, something that has reached its, its final and intended purpose. So it's, again, it's not the end of the world, but the end of the period that the Lord has designed. And Jesus describes his own role uh, at the end of the age, verse 41, 42. He, he gives instructions to the reapers, who are the angels, and they will perform his will and gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Um, I think something that's significant here, at the rapture, before the tribulation period, the followers of Jesus are removed. The church is removed. Right, so that's at the rapture. At the second coming of Christ, at the end of the tribulation period, the unbelievers are removed. And those who are followers of the Lord remain on the earth. So that's, that's a big change. And I think that's where people often get all bent out of shape, especially when they read Matthew 24 and 23 through 25. Because like, wait a minute, but those that were taken away were, were unbelievers, not believers. So I thought... You know, the rapture was the church being removed. We have to understand the context. Rapture, the believers, the church is removed. And the world is left to face the great tribulation, the time of God's judgment, right? At the end of that period, when Jesus comes back, it is the unbelievers who will be taken away. The righteous will be, remain on earth and will enter into the kingdom. Uh, verse 42 speaks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, this is serious business. This is very, very serious business. It suggests sorrow and grief. It, it suggests physical, emotional, mental uh, turmoil and, and, and agony. In other words, we want to be very sure who we are and who we're following. We want to be very, very sure that we're focused on the right people, the right place, the right truth. Right? We need to be followers of King Jesus. We need to be followers of the Messiah. We need to believe in him. We need to trust him. We need to embrace him. That is the only hope. That is the only rescue. That is the only place of forgiveness of sins. That is the only way we can be restored to relationship with God the Father is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 13, there's a parallel parable. That's a hard thing to say, a parallel par parable. But in verses 47 through 50, the parable of the dragnet and the fish basically say exactly the same thing. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea. Some of every kind were gathered. When it was full, they drew it to the shore. Then they sat down, gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. A very similar picture is, is presented to us in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, where the sheep are separated from the goats at the time of, of judgment. John Phillips makes a comment and he says, these parables deal with the present age that we're in now, interim age. They tell us something of God's secret plans and purposes for our age. Today, everything is seemingly marked by failure. We look around. Does it seem like the gospel is triumphing? No. It seems like unrighteousness, wickedness is, is, is triumphing at every, every turn. God's purposes are opposed. Instead of visibly triumphing, they are continually resisted. Truth is ever on the scaffold and wrong is ever on the throne. Yet... In spite of outward appearances, God's purposes are prospering. His goals are being attained, right? So through the rejection and the refusal, through the upheaval, through the pain, through everything else that's going on, God is working. God is at work. 
Verse 31, 32, another parable that he puts forth. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Again, as we look at this, Jesus likens the kingdom in the interim phase to a mustard seed, which he calls the smallest of all seeds. Now, we know it's not the smallest seed in the entire world, but in the daily experience of, of Jesus' listeners, it was the smallest seed that they would normally have handled. And in that day and time, there were many proverbs that, that spoke of you know, something being as small as a mustard seed. Jesus speaks of, of faith. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, etc. But the idea here is that it seems very small and very insignificant. So he says, a man took and sowed into his field. Okay, and who, who is this man, right? Where is the field? Uh, I think that, you know, looking at the context here, immediately after this parable, um, verse 36 through 43, Jesus explains the parable of wheat and tares. So sticking within the context, we can assume that the man is being referred to here is, is Jesus as the sower, and the field is the world. Again, the mustard seed, the seed is good. The seed is the kingdom which Jesus has sown into the world. But it's something very interesting here. A mustard plant is more of a bush than a tree. And yet it says in this case it became a tree, so large the birds came and nested or roosted in it. So on the one hand, small seed, insignificant, represents the beginnings of the kingdom. Kingdom is resisted. Uh, the kingdom is snatched away by Satan. It's hampered by persecution, trials, cares of the world. It's corrupted by the deceitfulness of riches, etc. But despite this, there's a few who genuinely believe. But this kingdom now, this mustard seed kingdom, grows and grows and grows and, and, and becomes very large. So, so what is this representing? Some people think this is speaking about the church and that you know, the, the church of our Lord Jesus will become militant, triumphant, will conquer the world basically, uh, the nations of the world, the people of the world will all come uh, to, to the Lord Jesus and that basically the church will set up the kingdom of God on this earth because the church will be very, very strong and powerful and successful. But notice something. It grows larger than is normal. This is an unnatural growth that is represented for us here. This is out of character that the mustard plant should grow so large. It could be that the Lord is indicating that during his absence, the, the, the impact of the kingdom could be taken by those that we've seen, the false professors, the, the groups we've already seen, the, the, the broad road, those people who make profession of faith, who latch on to the gospel but who are not true believers, that the, the, the church would experience perhaps a phenomenal growth during that time. But, you know, numerical growth is not always good growth, is it? Sometimes it's the very opposite. It's unhealthy growth. You, we can look back in history, and historically, when Christianity has become easy, acceptable, popular, uh, in places where the church has become promoted by the state and has become intertwined with, with politics, it often has, has had you know, excessive numerical growth. But when you look at that growth, it's superficial. It's, it's very lukewarm. It's very convenient. And it's driven often by outward pomp and ceremony, by, by religion, um, titles, positions, power, etc., etc. And so this abnormal growth that is spoken of here by the mustard seed makes it possible for the birds to take up residence in its branches. Same word, birds, is used in verse 4, which Jesus explains there represents the evil one. So again, within the context, these birds are not people coming for salvation. But these are perversions and corruptions to the gospel. This is as in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the sons of the wicked one that are sown in the midst of the wheat. And so the kingdom of heaven in its outward, outward visible form becomes a place where Satan infiltrates birds, weeds, wolves and sheep's clothing, etc. So again, this cautions us that we need to be on guard very much. Uh, we, we need to have discernment. The, the kingdom during this time is a mixture of good and evil. The last few parables are very interesting, and we're going to look at verse 33. Um, 
Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. This follows right after the parable of mustard seed. And this is, again, not something positive, but something negative. Uh, leaven is used uh, 98 times in the Bible. And it is always used in a negative sense. It's used 75 times in the Old Testament, 23 times in the New Testament, always in a bad sense. Some people have tried to say, oh, the leaven is the church in the world and the church conquers the world. You know, we spread our influence. But that doesn't fit the context here of what Jesus is speaking about at all. And certainly we know that prophetically this world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Uh, and and we, we read, you know, again and again in, in the Gospels and in the, in the epistles that at the, at the second coming of Jesus, this world will be in near total rebellion against the Lord. So again, you have the spreading of this yeast to live in something evil, something that, that is corrupting. Uh, but but it's, in, it's there in the, in, the, in the kingdom. Interesting, it says a woman took and hid the leaven. So it's not a man. So you can't confuse this with a man who has been sowing seeds at all because this is very, very different. It is a woman who is depicted here. So you can't confuse the main character. Who is the woman? We're not told. We're not told. Uh, some commentators have suggested Revelation 17... Uh, there is a woman referred to as Babylon, and it's, and it's some kind of um, mystical religious system that, is, that, that, that obviously corrupts the truth and takes people away from the Lord. Uh, Revelation, even Revelation 2.20 mentions a woman who is a false prophetess and who deceives the church with, with immoral and destructive heresies. So it could be something along those lines. Uh, the meal is, is flour, obviously representing good, good food, and yet this corrupting influence pervades it. Uh, it is concealed. Um, it is disguised in there, and it has a, a, a very widespread influence. So, interesting, the parable of the mustard seed shows evil coming in from outside, the birds nesting in the branches outside the kingdom. The parable of the leaven speaks of attacks from within, a leaven that is concealed within and then affects it. Um, <clears throat> I think of in Acts 20 where Paul said to the elders of, of Ephesus, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He said, you've got to be on guard. Why? Verse 29, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. So from outside, attacking, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Attack from without attack from within. And we see this in these parables as well. Verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. Uh, there's two little parables here side by side, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the costly pearl. And in both cases, there's, there's a, a new element that, that is suggested here. And it's the element of, of success, the element of, of something good, something valuable happening. And, and again, what this shows to us is despite all the parables we've been looking at and the bad news and the corruption and everything else, the rejection, God is at work. And he is recovering something very, very costly and valuable in the midst of, of all of this. So you see the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Some symbolism here again, obviously, the, the treasure was hidden in a field. So we know from other parables, the field is, is the world. God is still working in the world. Praise the Lord. He is still at work in this world. And he sees a treasure in this world. Again, if you want to look at scripture, stay within scripture. The treasure that is mentioned again and again is his earthly people, the nation of Israel. Exodus 19.5, you are a special treasure to me above all people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, you are a special treasure to me. Deuteronomy 14, you are a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 135, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. So specifically this treasure that the, world, that the Lord sees in the world is his, is his physical people, these earthly people of Israel. And specifically those who believe, the, the small remnant of Israel that is presented to us. And they're hidden in the field of the world. 
And certainly we can see in our time, after the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, and, and the movement of the Jews all throughout the world, and they scattered through every nation in the world. Amazingly, it says that he's going to gather them all back to Israel. Uh, and that, that started, didn't it? It started in 1948, and it continues to happen. It's setting the stage for what will happen in the future. The Lord knows where each one of them are, right? And he'll bring them back. The man here who buys the field is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And what he paid to buy that field, to purchase that field, uh, was himself. We read in Galatians 1, 4, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 2, 20, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 6, he gave himself a ransom for all. Titus 2.14, we looked at that in the earlier me meeting. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us. What, 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 a, what a treasure, what a price is, is paid. And we are beneficiaries of the fact that the Lord Jesus comes as the Messiah. A promise was made to Israel. Through Israel, the promise is extended to the world to us as Gentiles, to, to us as non-Jews. The Lord entered into a new covenant with Israel, but we are beneficiaries of that new covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many. We are that wild olive branch that has been grafted into the very stock of Israel, and we inherit the blessings that they inherit. Uh, we, we're a wild stock, but the Lord is not finished with that root of Jesse yet. That nation of Israel, he still has wonderful plans for them. Notice just quickly that the treasure is hidden again. The, the, the king came, he found the treasure, he came to his own. But his own did not receive him. He offered the kingdom to Israel. They had no use for the kingdom, they refused it. And so it was hidden again. Uh, in, in Luke 19, 44, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He proclaimed them that was rejected and it was hidden. Then it says, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame. This is not a sinner giving up all to, to, you know, in order to find Christ. That's how some people interpret this, right? It's like one of us finding about this kingdom of heaven. It's a wonderful treasure. So, you know, give up all so that you can find. No, no, no. Remember, salvation is by grace through faith. We don't have to pay for it. It's not about our efforts or, or whatever. It simply is believing his promise. The parable of the pearl of great value is very similar. Verse 45 and 46, a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. He finds a pearl of great price or value, and he sells all that he has to buy it. So again, the same similar idea that comes through here, the price that is paid. One difference between these two is, on the one hand, uh, there is a treasure in a field. Right? Uh, th this is a treasure. This is the nation of, of Israel in the midst of the world. The second parable, the pearl, is, is found by diving into the ocean. And the sea is consistently represented in the, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures as being the Gentile world, right? So we see the Lord's love for Israel, and now we see his love for the Gentiles, for, for us, and that's so precious, that we too are so precious that he goes and he sells all that he had to buy us as the Gentiles. What a marvelous, marvelous thing that, that is, and how thankful we can be. As you know, as we look at these, the, these parables, here's Jesus. He's working in the world. He's sowing into the world. There's various responses. There's a small group who believe, many, many who do not believe. In the midst of it all, he's doing something wonderful. He's finding treasures. He's, he's got a plan for his people, Israel. He's got a plan for us as the Gentiles. And he's given all. He's given all. He's given himself. He's given his life for us. And you know, when we think of our Savior, think of his great love, think of his sacrifice, we think of the redemption that he has provided, surely our, our heart should, should leap out within us and say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. What a Savior. What a work he's doing. What a kingdom he is establishing. And we can be sure 
that all that he has promised will come to fruition. And what a day that will be when he returns to this earth and all the tribes of the earth shall see him and mourn over him. Even the Israelites who rejected him will embrace him at that, at that point. And he truly will be acknowledged as the King of kings and Lord of lords on this earth, not just in heaven. And we'll be there. We'll be part of his entourage. We will sing and rejoice with him. We, we will return with him at his second coming. We will be part of that glorious bride of Christ. What a privilege it is to, to have the scriptures. What a privilege to know him. What a privilege to have such a savior. And what a privilege to know that we don't just have to be in a world spinning out of control, that we don't have any clue what's happening. We can know because the Lord has revealed it. Make sure that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. He died for you. He gave himself for you. He views you as valuable, as precious. Make sure that you respond to him in faith and receive him as your savior. Embrace him as your Lord, as your God, as your friend, as your master, as your shepherd. And entrust your life and your eternity to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for the things that we have touched on. And, and we ask and pray that, uh, Lord, this would not just be words, would not just be nice thoughts, but that you would impact our, our minds, our hearts, and that you would change our lives as a result of, of the truth that we have been exposed to. And indeed, Lord, I pray if there is somebody within the sound of my voice today that is a stranger to your grace, who does not know about King Jesus, who has never embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, that even today might be the day that they come in repentance and faith to receive you as their Lord and Savior. We thank you for the program, the kingdom that you are working on. We thank you for the certainty of it all because you who are God have guaranteed it. And we gladly entrust ourselves to your capable hands and rest in your power and strength and ask that we would go forth from this place now uh, in, in your strength and carried by your hand to glorify you, to represent you, to share with, with a lost and dying world the precious truths of the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.